Today, stories of fleeing and falling. Welcome. It's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard every day. To not be satisfied with just a little empty religion. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others, all influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Good to have you with us. Hey, maybe right about now I ought to have some kind of a a horn to blow or some kind of celebration because this is a milestone program. It's number 100 in the Gateway to Joy podcast series. Thanks for joining us today. And today we hear parts 7 and 8 in our series on Gladys Aylward, a missionary, and we'll hear about fleeing to the mountains and about falling in love today. We have three special guests. Uh, One will be Jan Wismer, the original co-host, the announcer for Gateway to Joy in the early days. She'll talk about the start of the quarter-hour Gateway to Joy program. Also, Janet and Jeff Bench have written a book about Elizabeth, and they'll talk about how this book has been received by young people and adults. But first, it's part seven of our ten-part series, Fleeing to the Mountains. Was Gladys falling in love? And how can we have faith and purpose in the midst of war? You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot continuing my story today of Gladys Aylward, missionary to China. We left off yesterday telling about a very interesting young officer in the Chinese army. In, he was a colonel, actually, of Chiang Kai-shek's intelligence. And he begins to take an interest in her. And for the first time in her life, she begins to wonder whether she might be attractive. Was there still in her face and body the indefinable mystery that draws a man to a woman? She was a missionary dedicated to God, But God had also made her a woman full of the natural tides and forces which stir womankind. If she was falling in love, she reasoned, then it was God who allowed it to happen. How much of this activity was due to her desire to please Linan, this colonel, and how much to a desire to serve China? She did not try to disentangle She only knew that in the bitterness of this war, she was now equipped with a faith and also a purpose. While she had to flee for safety from the Japanese bombings and spent six weeks in caves in the mountains with men, women, and children. The leaders of most units of the National Army in that part of Shanxi knew Gladys very well. She knew the mountains in that area far better than most of the people who lived there, certainly far better than the troops. Years of wandering over the ridges and through the valleys on foot or muleback, far from any habitation, had given her an expert knowledge of the terrain. It was almost dark when she returned to the village where she had first met the nationalist troops. The village elder met her outside his house, a gentle old man in a faded blue robe, a straggle of white hairs on his chin. 
General Lay is here, he whispered. He called to see me. He's an old friend. When he heard you might return, he waited. He's anxious to meet you. She quickened her step. She'd heard much of this general, but she had never met him. He was a legendary figure in the province, a Roman Catholic priest, a European, though from what country he came, she did not know. In these days, you did not ask questions about anyone's background. She heard later that he was a Dutchman, but never obtained confirmation. When the Japanese invaded Shanxi, he had not been content to sit back and rely upon God's mercy. With militant Christian fury, he had found weapons for his parishioners and struck back. Now he was leader of a large guerrilla force. They lived in the mountains and fought the Japanese whenever and wherever they could. It was therefore with a tingle of anticipation that Gladys walked into the courtyard to meet this man. In the half-light, she saw him standing there, feet astride, arms clasped behind his back, a sturdy figure of medium height dressed in a long black robe. His short cropped hair was blonde. He had a strong, supple face. His mouth was determined yet ready to smile. Only his eyes, she thought, were sad, detached. He smiled, hand outstretched. Ai Wei De. That was her name in Chinese. We shall forget that you are a woman and I am a man, that you're a Protestant and I'm a Roman Catholic. We seem to have some things in common, General Lay, she said, returning his smile. We have a common enemy, he said, suddenly somber again. His eyes were grave. Come inside and let us talk. You must be tired and hungry. As they scooped at their bowls of millet by the light of the flickering lamp, there was immediately between them that sense of warm friendship which so rarely illumines a first meeting. They talked of many things. The main body of Lay's men were sheltering in caves some miles away. They were moving across to ambush the main trail between Tseichou and Gaoping the next day. Their information was good. We shall kill many Japanese, he said. Their eyes met across the lamp. She understood, and he knew she understood this agonizing dilemma of his Christian conscience. She, too, in the quietness of her prayers, had tried to find some clear path to follow. Should they stand aside and let the forces of evil reach with black fingers into every corner of the province? Or should they take up the sword and in the name of God strike at the evil hand wherever it clutched? She scraped the last few grains of millet from the bottom of the bowl. General Lay, she mused, why do they call you general? The rank is purely honorary, he said, smiling again. The men prefer it that way. They have more face serving under a general. And it is a convenient nom de plume. She hesitated. Aren't you frightened of being caught by the Japanese? She knew it was a naive question, but it was one she had to ask. Often, he said, very often. Are you? I hardly think about it. I have heard much about you, Ai Wei De, he said quietly. What have you heard? At times you make journeys behind the Japanese lines to gather information for the Chinese armies. That is true, is it not? There was a ring of accusation in his voice, and she looked at him wonderingly. Yes, she said. His eyes were fastened on hers. Do you not feel that you are 
betraying the position that God has given you, he demanded coldly. God recognizes the difference between right and wrong, she said stormily. We can recognize the difference, can't we? Our Lord drove the moneylenders out of the temple with whips. The Japanese sweep through our countryside, looting, burning, and killing. We must drive them out, too, with every means in our power. These are my people they kill. My people, legally, morally, spiritually. And I shall go on doing what I can to protect and help them. She stopped suddenly in the middle of her tirade, conscious that he was smiling. You did that on purpose, she said accusingly. Nevertheless, she felt relieved. He nodded slowly. Yes. She knew he did not need an answer. He was examining his own conscience aloud. I am in this country to teach the ignorant and aid the sick and bring the word of God to those who have never heard it. And yet, on the battlefield, I see the corpses of the men I have helped to kill. Yes, killed myself with these own two hands. He jerked out his hands in a quick gesture of contempt. Yet what is the use of neutrality? There's fighting in every part of the world, I weigh de, against a common enemy of evil. And unless every man takes up arms, spiritual, moral, and physical arms, and fights in the way he is best equipped to fight, how can we ever defeat it? I am a man as well as a priest, I weigh de, a man. You know what they have done, I weigh de. They have killed and looted and burned. How can a Christian man stand by while it continues? I cannot and I shall not. Then, as quickly as it had risen, the anger died in him. He looked down at his hands, still stretched before him, dropped them to his side, and wiped the palms against his gown with a downward movement, as if to wipe out a stain. The judgment must come later, he said wearily. His eyes lifted again after a moment of silence. A wry smile twisted his lips. Mine is a religious order that believes in confession, he said quietly. Gladys returned his look. I understand, she said gently. She did not know what else to say, although she yearned for words that would reveal her sympathy and seal the bond between them. There was no way she knew of offering him comfort beyond that his faith offered him. No one else could carry or share his burden. Yet she also knew that from this meeting between them, two aliens far from their homelands. Each would take some comfort. In this way, their meeting was endowed with dignity and a strength that neither would forget. She did not know that in the years to follow in every latitude such transient, comforting meetings of men and women for a few seconds, minutes, hours, or days were to be commonplace, that the old fabric of long-growing years, slowly ripening acquaintanceships, Civilizing codes of conduct was to be slashed to pieces by the exigencies 
of war. The few poignant moments before the battle, before the gas chamber, before the takeoff, before the embarkation leave, before the surgical operation, before the falling bomb, were all that millions of men and women were to have as solace on their short and bitter journeys to the grave. Yet in these little meetings of kindred spirits, without a past to give them guidance or a future to give them hope, they would find a measure of peace and coherence to lend a reason to their dying, a faith to give some semblance of sanity to their farcical affairs of mankind. Remember that the Bible says that we are to imitate the faith of our leaders. That's why I always want to recommend Christian biographies. It gives us a chance to see the span of a man or woman's life from birth to death and the faithfulness of God. Part 7 in our 10-part series on Gladys Aylward, Fleeing to the Mountains. Well, we'll be hearing from Janet and Jeff Benj about a book they've written about Elizabeth Elliot, but also we'll hear from Jan Wismer first. She was the original co-host of the Gateway to Joy quarter hour program. Tell us about the early days. Come with me back to 1979. The setting is a radio studio on the campus of Grace College of the Bible in Omaha, Nebraska. There's a young woman there who's working the graveyard shift. So she decides to write a letter to Elizabeth Elliot. So she sits down at the Selectric typewriter and the hum of the typewriter is in the background as she writes Elizabeth to tell her just how much she has appreciated the book, Let Me Be a Woman. And while this girl, this young college girl is writing this, God plants a seed in her heart that says, one day Elizabeth Elliot is going to be on the radio. In April of 1988, Back to the Bible invited Elizabeth Elliot to come and be the speaker for a 15-minute radio program. At that time, the Lord gave me these verses. I had in mind to build a house as a resting place. I had in mind to build a radio program with Elizabeth Elliot. And David says, and I made preparations. And God said to me, all of this was drafted by the Lord's own hands. Now who is willing to give today with an open hand? It was God's work. He allowed me to have something to do with the beginning of it. And it was such a privilege to get to work with Elizabeth. Jan Wismer, first co-host and announcer for the Gateway to Joy quarter hour broadcast on radio. Later on, we'll hear from Janet and Jeff Benj about an Elizabeth Elliot book they've written. Also, right now, it's part eight in our 10-part series on missionary Gladys Aylward. We'll hear about a wise and kindly military man. This is called Falling in Love. Gladys Aylward, the small woman of China, an amazing missionary. We left her just as she had been having a long and deep conversation with a Dutch Roman Catholic priest who was also a general in the Nationalist Army in China when the war was on. The wick burned low in the earthenware lamp. 
In the darkness, General Lay, that's the priest, left the house of the village elder and with his long black gown flapping about his legs, climbed back through the mountains to rejoin his men. Gladys met him twice after that, but there were others present and there was never time to do more than smile and exchange a greeting. It was many months later in Tse Cho that she heard of his death. He had been killed by the Chinese, the report said, but both nationalists and communists disclaimed responsibility. He would answer well at his court of God, Gladys decided sadly. The Chinese clung grimly to the territory around Tsechou through the autumn and winter and into the early spring of 1940. It was during this period that Gladys became friendly with the Chinese general based in the city. Introduced by Linen, she was made welcome at his house after several of her exploits. He personally gave her the badge which established her identity with troops in the field. She often dined with him and his officers. He was an older man than Linen, with a long and honorable battle record behind him. He had been present as junior officer at the famous Shanghai incident when, on the night of January 28, 1932, the Japanese had sent companies of Marines marching across the boundary of the international settlement of Shanghai and into the Chinese quarter, Chapei. He had been an officer of the 19th Root Army, which, with bitter gallantry, had so bloodily repulsed them. The general smiled ironically as he recounted the incident to Gladys. It's surprising how acquiescent the world's conscience can become when an action becomes commonplace, is it not? He was a wise and kindly man, considerate of his troops and contemptuous of the graft, corruption, and greed that existed among his superiors in Kuomintang. It was for Gladys a period of fluctuating and feverish activity. Another missionary named David Davis had left the previous autumn to take his wife and children and several other Europeans out to the coast. Without his help, they would not, certainly not have got through safely. Gladys knew he would be back as soon as he could. Few love affairs can have flourished in circumstances stranger than that of Gladys and Linan. Do you remember that Linan was an officer in the intelligence service, and she had had a number of different encounters with him and began to wonder if perhaps he might be interested in her. Was she attractive? Might she fall in love? They met at odd moments in the mountains, in shattered villages, in bombed towns. They talked at odd moments between battles and births and baptisms. They exchanged scraps of news, had a meal together, talked of the future that they would build in the new China. His concern, his gentleness, his tenderness toward her never wavered. They discussed marriage. He was eager that they should marry at once, live together as man and wife as best they could, war or no war. It was Gladys who said no. The war had to be won first. Marriage, their personal happiness, must wait. She wrote to her family in faraway England and told them that she was going to marry a Chinese. 
and hoped that they would understand. Her father wrote back and said that if her happiness would be secure with this man, they would be happy also. She read the letter in a cave in the mountains, not far from Yang Cheng, where she had been visiting some of her converts. How the letter had come up across the Yellow River and reached her in the mountains, she could not imagine. But a messenger had brought it from Yang Cheng. She wept a little as she read it, for all she had had to eat that day was a bowl of boiled green weeds plucked from the mountainside, and she was perhaps a little light-headed. With the coming of spring, every day brought the Japanese closer to Tseicho. They wanted that town very badly. In the fields and villages a few miles outside, the Chinese troops resisted them valiantly. A stream of wounded were passed back into Tseicho. Even the compound of the mission was used as a dressing station. Often, Gladys went out with the bearers to bring in wounded men. They used doors torn from their hinges as stretches. Gladys was a single-hearted woman. She had set her face like a flint, and she had entrusted all her womanly and very human longings to the Lord who engineers a universe according to his fathomless love. Do you know the gospel song, Jesus Calls Us, or the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea? Day by day, his sweet voice soundeth, saying, Christian, follow me. In our joys and in our sorrows, days of toil and hours of ease, still he calls in cares and pleasures, Christian, love me more than these. Who is listening to me today who is experiencing joys, sorrows, days of toil, hours of ease, cares, or pleasures? You know who you are. Do you hear the call of Jesus? Love me more than these. One day, Gladys got word that there was a price on her head. She said, what am I worth to anybody? She laughed. The idea is preposterous. Without a word, the orderly fumbled in his tunic pocket, produced a piece of paper, and handed it to her. Those leaflets are being pasted up in the villages outside Tseicho. They will appear on the gates of this city tomorrow. She took it over to the lamp to read. The shadows danced across the small hand bill. One hundred dollars reward, it continued. One hundred dollars will be paid by the Japanese army for information leading to the capture alive of any of the three people listed below. Gladys's eyes scanned the names. First was the Mandarin of Tseicho. Second was the name of a well-known businessman noted for his nationalist sympathies. The third line simply read, The Small Woman, known as Ai Wei De. Her immediate reaction was that the whole affair was unbelievable. A hundred dollars, a small fortune. They must be mad, she exclaimed, offering a hundred dollars for me. But the dark figure in the doorway didn't move. You must leave by the morning, I weigh de. I go now. You must leave as soon as the sun rises. How can I run away in the face of the enemy, she asked herself desperately. 
as another part of her mind warned her to seek safety at once. Obviously, the Japanese had learned of her intelligence work for the nationalists. Someone had betrayed her. The enemy would have no scruples in squaring the account, nor would her sex offer protection. Yet she was still reluctant to leave. Her training, her heart, and her spirit were all against abandoning her post in the face of the enemy. Yet she had seen many dreadful things these past years. The enemy were not above practicing many of them on a Christian spy. Inside her head a little voice warned, If you stay, you will surely die. There was a Chinese prayer that she knew well. If I must die, let me not be afraid of death, but let there be a meaning, O God, to my dying. Would there be a meaning if she waited meekly for the Japanese to come and take her? She did not know what to do, but on impulse reached out for her Bible. It lay on the table next to the leaflet. She flipped it open at random, then bent forward to read in growing awe the line of Chinese characters. Flee ye, flee ye into the mountains. Dwell deeply in the hidden places, because the king of Babylon has conceived a purpose against you. The king of Babylon has conceived a purpose against you, she repeated aloud wonderingly. If she wanted a sign, was this not it? Flee, flee. Yes, she knew now that she must leave at first light. She went to her little box in the corner and began to pull out all her papers and letters. They must be burned before she left. Not a scrap of evidence of any sort must remain. She was still busy when dawn came, but she had completed her task. The sun was up, and she went down into the compound carrying her Bible and the small leaflet. One of the Chinese elders, a good Christian she had known for many years, was already taking a stroll in the sunlight. On impulse, she held out the small square of paper to him. He took it, looked at it reflectively for a few moments, and lifted his eyes to her. His expression was grave. You should be out, he said. You should be away from here. I'm going now, she replied. I'm on my way to ask the gateman to get my mule ready. Part 8 in our 10-part series that we conclude next time. And uh, this was called Falling in Love. Well, before we go, let's hear from Janet and Jeff Benj. They have written a book on Elizabeth Elliot, and they'll talk about how people have responded to the book. It's been out now for 13 years. There's a lot of interest in this story, and it, it keeps on going. Um... And I think one of the interesting things, while we write for the middle and high school student market, uh, we have a big adult readership of our books as well. And I know that this book is read far and wide by a lot of adults. So it has a very broad reach. When we go to uh, homeschooling conventions, we often have young girls come up to us and you know we ask them well which books do you enjoy the most and Elizabeth Elliot is routinely in the top two or three books that uh, the girls read and uh, I, I think she just speaks to possibilities and to you know dreaming and then following through I mean she had a lot of tenacity to get through her studies and then her linguistic studies and she just kept pressing on. I think that kids today find that very inspiring. Authors Janet and Jeff Bench. 
Well, thanks for joining us on this milestone program today, Gateway to Joy podcast number 100. And thank you for coming along, whether for all 100, it would be interesting to hear if that's true, or maybe you've just uh, joined us at different times or in the last few programs. Whatever your story is on that, thank you for joining us today. Hey, let me thank you for letting us come along with you. Maybe you were getting some exercise or were at home or at the office. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org. Lectures, talks, devotionals, videos, and more. elizabethelliot.org. Blitz JRTB27 tells us that she loves the wisdom that Elizabeth and Valerie share on motherhood. I am a first-time mom, she writes, to an eight-month-old, and what I learned will prepare me on how to train him in the ways of the Lord. Isn't that what it's really all about? Thanks for using what you're hearing from the Word of God in your daily life. And until next time, may God remind you daily. You are loved with an everlasting love. Underneath are those everlasting arms.